Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Exodus, the 14th chapter. I'm going to invite you to open up a Bible to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, and I'll make it very easy on you today. If you'll just get that Bible open to Exodus chapter 14 and just stay right there, going to work in this text for the duration of our time together. I'm going to talk about this somewhat familiar Old Testament story, and while these are Old Testament ideas, I'm going to draw some applications that I think are very relevant for us today, particularly in the day and age in which we are living. Let's get to looking in Exodus chapter 14. It is great to be with you this morning and it's great to have the opportunity to be together and for us to study from the Word of God and I want to just get right to it. I'm just going to dispense with all of the opening pleasantries and just get right into Exodus chapter 14. Read with me if you will as we read here about the Israelite people and about what they experience. In Exodus chapter 14, I'm reading here beginning in verse 5. In Exodus 14 and in verse 5, we're told that when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people and they said, What is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Let's just stop right there. It is stunning, isn't it? It's stunning to see the 180 degree change of attitude on the part of the Israelites between verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8 says that the Israelites marched out of Egypt defiantly. Two verses later, they were cowering in fear. Verse 10 says that they looked up and they saw Pharaoh's armies and they were terrified. Think about it. And maybe as many as two million Israelites who only just a few days earlier had celebrated that amazing Passover that God had given to them. They had witnessed all of the extraordinary plagues that God had delivered upon the land of Egypt. Those people, they marched out with joy and expectations in their heart. We're free. No longer are we slaves. We are out of Egyptian bondage. Those people, they forgot all of that. All of that was a distant memory. Because all they could see before them was water. The Red Sea stretched out for miles. And behind them, Pharaoh's armies, fearsome, more than 600 chariots, the text says, ready to plow over these helpless peasant people. What was going to happen when the Israelites woke up the next morning and Pharaoh and his troops decide that they're going to get their revenge because they realize they've got the Israelites backed into a corner? It was, to say the very least, a very tough spot to be in. But it is in many ways, I believe, a spot that we as the people of God find ourselves in today. Let's just admit it, our society has become increasingly secular. 
Our society, our culture is more and more interested in wickedness of every kind, seemingly every passing day. And as that tide of iniquity and filth is beginning to rise all around us, so too does a disdain for things that are good and wholesome and righteous. You know, it's not enough that people today want to do bad things. No, now people want those who object to such evil to remain silent. The world wants to go around and parade and flaunt all of its wickedness and all of its sin. And if we're not willing to join in with them, then the world wants us to stay quiet or better yet, to condone them. It seems as if in many ways we are surrounded by darkness. And I believe because of that there is a danger today, maybe like never before, for us to just go along and get along and conform to this world to give in to what we see around us as we are being pressed on every side by the evil and darkness of the domain of Satan. What are we supposed to do in this mess? As the people of God, what should our response be when it seems like the world is closing in on us? Well, this morning, I want to share with you Three responses, just right out of this text in Exodus chapter 14. Two wrong responses, and then one correct response that I hope will help all of us living in 2020 to be able to navigate through the dark and in many ways uncharted waters that we find ourselves in. Are you ready for that? That all begins just by picking up where we left off. Pick up with me in verse 11. In verse 11, the text says, The people then said to Moses... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What is is one of the most common responses in times of trouble and difficulty. Whenever we are in a jam, whenever life is difficult, whenever it seems like forces are pushing in all around us, oftentimes one of the most common responses is, my oh my, I miss the good old days. I do, I miss those days. Things used to be so good back then. Those were the days, don't you remember? And that's exactly what these Israelites are doing. They are pining for the good old days. Now I find it interesting that nobody was talking about the good old days when they were still in Egypt living in the quote-unquote good old days. Nobody said to Moses, Hey Moses, you you guys, you go on ahead and you just go ahead and make the exodus without me. I, I, I don't really want to go to the promised land. I, I think I'm just going to stay here. I think I'll just make bricks and get beaten on by the Egyptians. It's just so much better here. This is a good life. No. Nobody was saying that. Nobody was thinking that. But yet now, these people are looking around at their situation. They see and they find that they are in between a rock and a hard place. And all you can hear from their lips is, Oh my, I miss the good old days. I miss the way things used to be. I miss how it was back in Egypt. It was so much better. In fact, you should know this is not the only time in Israel's history when they are going to have this problem. 
There are several times as you continue on throughout the Old Testament where these people will just hearken back to those days back in Egypt, those days back in slavery, and they're going to talk about it in glowing terms as if it was peachy keen and hunky-dory. Oh, we got problems. We got difficulties. What's the solution? Let's just go live in the past because life was apparently so much better back then. Recently, the head of a major denomination, he was speaking. And he said this. He said, America was better off back in 1955. He went on to explain. He said, problems like divorce and child abuse and teen pregnancy and abortion and suicide and pornography were barely noticeable. He went on to say, we have young people today who don't even know any different. Because they've never experienced America when it was right. Now it's awfully tempting to hear that and to give out just a big hearty, Amen, brother, you just preach right on. But I'm going to suggest to you that that that's maybe a mistake. To think that you didn't have to worry about abortion and gangs and online pornography and fractured families back in 1955. Oh man, that was a great year. Wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to 1955? How much easier it was to be able to serve the Lord back in these times. But I think there's some real problems with pining for the past and thinking about the good old days in those terms. For example, first and foremost, I would suggest to you that things really weren't all that good in the good old days. Those good old days aren't always as flowery and amazing as we remember them to be. You know, we often have a tendency to to idealize the past. Our brains, our memories, they they serve as, as wonderful erasers where it's able to scrub out all of the things that were difficult and unpleasant while at the same time we hold on to all those things that were good and enjoyable and pleasant. And you know what? That's what's going on here in Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites, what they remember was the security that maybe they felt back in Egypt that okay, at least I knew where my house was or where I was going to lay my head down at night. And I knew I was going to be fed a couple of square meals every single day, but they seemed to have forgotten that in the midst of those comforts, they were dying in slavery. All of a sudden, everybody just forgot all about that. And sometimes, sometimes that's what we do. We forget about what the past really was like. Like, for example, think about the lack of technology in years gone by. Think about how much more difficult communication and travel were in days gone by. You may be old enough to remember preachers, I'm old enough to remember preachers, who used to use bedsheet charts. Do you remember those? They'd have like some kind of a board, and a preacher would spend days and days, hours and hours, with a clean white bedsheet, and he would stencil and write in precise lettering all of the verbiage and all of the words on this piece of fabric, and he'd get all that design, maybe even have some illustrations and pictures on there, and he'd hang that up on an easel, and he would use that while he preached. Well, I'll tell you this, I really appreciate preachers that used to put that much effort into that, but you know what? PowerPoint gets the job done in like, I don't know, like five minutes? And in some ways, way better than those bed sheets could. I can use all that extra time working on something else, couldn't I? Or what about lots of other things? It's not just technology. What about indoor plumbing? Or paved roads? Or clean drinking water? 
Lots of those things, if you went back just a couple of generations, lots of those things were considered luxuries. You'd have had to have been amongst the richest of the richest to enjoy those kinds of things. But now, now those things are, well, they're just kind of expected. We consider those kind of part of our, our, our inalienable right that we're going to have access to those things. And it's not just those things. What about as well about all the advancements in medicine that have been made? What about women who used to die in childbirth, which was very common in the good old days? Or what about people who would die from infections, simple infections, because there weren't any antibiotics? Again, very common back in the good old days. We need to just be more honest, I believe, about the good old days. That yes, there were some good things about them, but they weren't as perfect as we remember them to be. And furthermore, I just need to say, we need to remember as well that the good old days, those were not sin-free times. That's important for us to remember. Yes, there are some things that have changed. Maybe there's more kinds of sin today. Maybe it's easier to access certain kinds of sin today. There's certainly more acceptance and tolerance of certain kinds of sin today. I understand all of that, but don't kid yourself. There were people who were sinning back in 1955. Everybody was not a child of God in 1955 or 1925 or 1875 or at any other point in the history of this world. When we read passages in the Bible like Romans 3 verse 23 that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's no exception to that. There's no footnote in your Bible that says, oh, except in the Bible Belt in 21st century America. No! People have always turned away from the Lord. There have always been people who are devising sin and iniquity. The devil has always enticed people to leave the paths of righteousness and pursue after him. You know, that fellow, that preacher that I quoted from a moment ago who said some things about sins that weren't as noticeable in 1955, like abortion and gang violence. He actually failed to mention other sins that were very noticeable in 1955, like, for example, racial discrimination and prejudice. You ask those people. I wonder how many people in 1955 thought that America was so right when folks had to sit in the back of the bus or had to drink from a separate drinking fountain simply because of the color of their skin. Let's understand, some things have changed. But there are also some things that will never change. There was sin in the good old days, and we ought not gloss over that. And maybe the most important thing that I can say about all this, about this pining for the good old days, is that at the end of the day, it just doesn't really do any good. It doesn't do any good to go on and on and on about the way things used to be because, well, because you can't go back to those days. I don't care how good it was back in 1955 or in 1965 or back in 1985. Hey, I'm a child of the 80s. I'd like to go back to the 80s. I'd like to see some of the things from the 80s come back in time. But you know what? It doesn't matter. We don't live there anymore. We can't live there anymore. Time marches on. The world has changed whether we like that or not. We do not have leave-it-to-beaver dinners anymore where dad comes to the table dressed in a suit and tie and mom has been cleaning and cooking all day wearing pearls. Those days are gone. 
Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10 says that pining for the good old days, it's not wise, it's not from wisdom that we say such things. The best thing that you and I can do is to just recognize our reality. Recognize the present world in which we live. We don't want to be naive about that. And at the same time, we don't want to be thinking in the past. We want to recognize where we are and then deal with the present reality of the world in which we live. Because whining about the past accomplishes nada. Nothing. All it does is it immobilizes us, it cripples us, and it destabilizes us. And in Exodus the 14th chapter, I'm impressed with the fact that Moses does not say, you know what guys, you're right. You are, you're right. We need to figure out how to go back to the good old days. We need to find us a DeLorean and Doc Brown and we need to go back in time. That's what will get us out of this mess. No, that's not what Moses says. Just like secondly, Moses doesn't agree with this second response of the Israelites and that is the response that says we ought to just surrender. We ought to just give up. You know, if you read those verses in verses 11 and 12 again, you just have to imagine somebody was running through the Israelite camp looking for white bed sheets so that they could sew them together and they could make a big white flag of surrender. We'll just show Pharaoh that, hey, we're not defiant. You know, maybe he'll just, you know, give us a, a light beating and put us back in chains and take us back to Egypt and put us back to work there. That would be a whole lot better than dying out here in the middle of the wilderness. Let's just give up. Come on, Moses, think about it. What chance do we stand against the most heavily armored, the greatest military in the whole known world at this point? I mean, we're just a bunch of farmers, we're brickmakers, we're just regular people. We don't have swords and armor and shields. We can't do anything. Let's just surrender. In fact, once again, this is an attitude that would plague the Israelite people for generations. For example, when you get to the book of Numbers, ten guys are going to go and they're going to spy out the land of Canaan. And they're going to return and they're going to say, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. There's giants in that land. And when the report of that gets back to the ears of the rest of the Israelites, they're going to say, done, not going in there, not going to do it, let's just give up right now. God's people have always been hindered by those who react to trouble by wanting to give up. But I want you to notice back in the text again, do you see what the problem here is with these Israelites at this point in time? Do you see the failure on their part? The problem is, is that they keep talking about Moses bringing them out of Egypt. Look again at verse 11. At verse 11 again, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? No less than three times in those verses do they tell Moses, this is your fault. You took us out of Egypt. You drug us out of here. It almost makes it sound like Moses just held them at gunpoint and made them go. You're just a bad, bad man, Moses. Absolutely not. Moses is not the one who brought them out of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? God brought them out of Egypt. That's who took them out of Egypt. 
What these people have done is they have completely taken their eyes off of the Lord. They're looking at the water in front of them. They're looking at the armies behind them. And they're not looking up to the heavens where God is. They have completely lost perspective. They have forgotten who's really in charge. They're looking at all of this stuff that's all around them and they're failing to see and remember the Lord who was the one who powerfully brought them out of Egyptian bondage. Did they really believe that God would go to such extraordinary lengths that God would send all of those plagues, do all of those wonders, so that He could then bring them to the edge of the Red Sea where they would then give up and go back to slavery? Really? Is that what God was going to do? Of course not! God didn't go to all of that trouble to bring them this far, and now He's going to saw the limb off behind them and leave them high and dry. Absolutely not! God brought them this far because He's going to bring them farther. What about you? Where are you at? Where are you at in your walk with God? How far has God brought you? Understand very clearly that wherever you are, God has went to a lot of trouble to redeem you, to buy you out, buy you back from the slavery of sin. He's went to extraordinary lengths in order to set you free. He has set forth a plan all the way from the beginning of time. He sent His Son to die upon the cross. He gave His Spirit to write and to record the words of eternal life. Furthermore, the Lord has preserved and protected those words in a book so that you could have them down to centuries of time so that you could read and understand the implications of the great plan that He has brought. Not only that, but the Lord, if you're a Christian... The Lord has given you a new family. Not only has He made you His child, but He's given you brothers and sisters, people to encourage you, people to help you, people to be with you every step of the way as you do this journey toward the promised land. Because God plucked you out of the clutches of sin. God wants to keep you out of the clutches of sin. God does not want you or me to look around at all of the filth and all of the wickedness that's going on, all of the darkness that pervades our culture, and then shrug our shoulders and say, well, I just can't do it. It just can't be done. Might as well give up. God redeemed us. God continues to redeem us and save us and help us and deliver us. He does that through His Word. He does that through His people. He does that through His providence. What God is working to see to it is that you don't go back to Egypt. In fact, it's really one of the things that bothers me the very most. Whenever Christians gather up and they recite and they share all of these news stories, there's so much bad news in our world today, We gather up all that bad stuff, all the immoral stuff that's going on, and we pass that stuff around on the internet, in our emails, and on our Facebook accounts, and we say, oh, did you see this latest outrage? My, oh my. Oh, have you seen this terrible thing over here? Did you see the latest reports, the latest statistics about how many people are participating in this sin? Did you see this poll, this research? Look at how many people have bad attitudes about the Bible and about belief in God. We pass all of that stuff around and what is the message that we are sending? Particularly, I I fear, what kind of message are we sending to our young people? I fear the message that we are sending is, it's just no use. 
It's no use. I mean, look how bad it is. You can't be a Christian in this day and time. You can't be and live a holy life in the middle of an unholy world. Why do we even bother? That's a mistake. When we sing the enemy's praises, that has devastating effects. I think often about Demas in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 who forsook the Lord. He deserted Paul. He went back into the world. He gave up because he thought that was his only option. I'm saying to you this morning that that is not an option. This idea of just kind of giving in, just going along, just surrendering, it's not an option. We need to be warned against this thinking of we can't. We need to stop talking up the devil. Stop looking for white flags of surrender as if there's no way we can serve the Lord in this day and age. Somebody would maybe then ask, well, okay, if the answer is to not go backwards to the good old days, and if the answer, furthermore, is not to give in to the present distresses that are around us, then what do we do? What do we do when it feels like the forces of darkness are pressing in all around us? The answer is, we need to move forward. We need to move forward in faith. Would you join the reading in verse 13 where we left off? Verse 13, the text goes on to say, Moses then said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord then said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Verse 16, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You might want to note here that in verse 13, Moses said, stand still. But in verse 15, God said, go forward. It's not time to stand still. It is time to move ahead in faith. What God recognized is that people who are in motion are going to be people who are too busy to complain and to pine for the good old days. People who are moving forward, who are in motion, they're going to be too busy, they're going to be too committed to even think about giving up. Standing around just looking at problems never solves problems. Somebody needs to get busy. Somebody needs to work on those problems. And that only is going to happen whenever people are willing to go forward with complete faith and trust in God. Just put yourself there on the banks of the Red Sea. What would you have thought when Moses stretched out his staff and carved those waters apart? Are you going to volunteer to be the first one to walk through? Remember a couple years ago I was teaching the third, fourth, and fifth grade class and we were studying this story. And I asked them, I said, hey, which one of you guys is going to be the first one to volunteer and say, hey, I'll go through on the dry ground first. Not a single one of them were willing to be the guinea pig. We don't want to do that. We're not sure how long those walls of water are going to hold up. 
I sometimes wonder if maybe an epidemic of manners broke out that day on the edge of the Red Sea. Oh, you first. Oh, no, 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 no. You first. I insist you should go first. It was going to take faith, wasn't it? It would take faith to walk down the middle of those giant walls of water. Just like today. It'll take faith. It'll take courage. It'll take huge trust in the Lord to meet the challenges that we as God's people face in the world today. We could talk, for example, about the challenge of evangelism, of sowing the seed and sharing the gospel with others. Trying to do that in a day and time when people are just so resistant to the gospel. And yet, we need more evangelism. Not less evangelism. We recognize that. That we need more faith in, in the power of the gospel. That it does still work. That it has a genuine appeal to good and honest hearts who are seeking after the Lord. Just ask yourself, when it comes to things like evangelism, is it possible that you're one of those folks who are living in the past? You're always talking about the good old days? Oh boy, I tell you what, I remember when we used to have two-week, three-week gospel meetings. And people would just turn out in droves for that. And it was not uncommon for 20, 30, 40 people to be baptized, be converted at the end of all that. Oh my! You used to be able to share the good news once upon a time. Is it possible maybe as well that maybe we've told ourselves kind of the white flag of surrender? Oh, nobody's interested. Nobody cares about the Bible today. You know, we had the tent meeting last week. I invited some folks. They didn't come. People don't care about the Lord anymore. It doesn't do any good for us to even bring that up in our conversations. Might as well just give up. It takes real faith. It takes real courage to say, you know what? God is right. People need Jesus. And I have faith enough in the Lord that if I'll just simply hold up Christ and Him crucified, people will be drawn to the cross and the Lord is going to give the increase. That's the kind of faith we need. Or what about this? What about the challenge? What about the challenge of a church to remain strong and to continue to grow? That's always a challenge, isn't it? That's especially a challenge right now in the age of COVID. Because it's really easy when maybe things get a little bit stagnant that we start reminiscing about the good old days. Oh my. I remember 15, 20 years ago. Boys building was packed. I remember we was having to think about expanding on to the building and man, everybody was just giddy up and going, but then this happened and that happened and well, this is now where we are right now. And so, ah, boy, those were good old days though, weren't they? It's easy as well to kind of do the surrender thing where we say things like, ah, it's, it's just not reasonable for us to expect to grow and to have growth at the rate that maybe we once did. You know, we've really kind of reached our full potential. The preacher's kind of done all that he could possibly do. No congregation can really keep on growing. Let's just accept that this is who we are. This is just the way that it's going to be and this is the way we're always going to be. But you know what? It takes real faith. And it takes real courage to keep moving forward. For us to keep laboring in the kingdom of God with the expectation, with the faith of even a tiny little mustard seed, that if we'll plant and sow, that God will allow that to grow into the mustard plant, which is the largest of all in the field, Jesus says. Or I should ask as well, what about the challenge of standing solid for the truth? You know, there's so much pressure today for us to 
to just bend and accommodate and to go along and to not be so rigid, not be so careful in our approach with the Scripture. The easy thing to do would be for us to just kind of start pining for the past. Oh man, I remember when there wasn't all these false doctrines that we have today. I remember when everybody used to be in agreement on certain facets of what the Bible taught. I remember when there wasn't all of these denominations in town and there really was just the one church. All these big churches that offer their fancy gymnasiums and Starbucks coffee cafeterias and whatnot. Or you know, maybe the really easy thing for us to do is to just give in a little bit. To just surrender, to just compromise on some morals. Maybe give in to some of the modern practices and innovations. I mean, come on, we don't need to be so staunch in our stand for the truth. Let's try to not be so, 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 so different and so distinct about things. Can't we just tone it down a little bit, make the truth a little bit more palatable to folks? In fact, just this past week, the head of the Roman Catholic Church gave his endorsement to same-sex civil unions. Hey, can't we just be more like that guy? Think about how much more we're going to appeal to the world. But I'll tell you this. It takes real faith to go forward holding up the banner of simple New Testament Christianity. It takes courage for us to remain true to the pattern of New Testament worship and work as authorized by the Scriptures. It takes real trust in God to boldly stand for what is right, particularly in a time when everyone is blowing in the ever-changing winds of popular opinion. As I look at Exodus chapter 14, the challenges to those people on that day was to do what? The challenge for them was to move forward, trusting God. And you know what happened on that fateful day, don't you? Let's read it anyway. In verse 22, drop on down in the text. In verse 22, the Bible says, Then the people of Israel, they went in to the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued, and they went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove hard, heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Do you see what happens? Do you see what happens and how the Lord provides victory often in unexpected ways? How God always makes a way for His people. God always sustains His people. God always provides deliverance for His people. And what we need to do today as we are surrounded by darkness and we feel like we don't know what to do, obey the Lord. Keep moving forward in faith. That's what these people did. At least they did on this occasion. And God took care of the rest. And so when people ask the question, 
What are we to do today? What, what are God's people supposed to do in this wicked time in which we live? We just feel like we're just being crushed on every side, everywhere that we turn. What are we supposed to do? The answer to that question is the same now as it was then. The answer to that question always is God. God is the answer to that question every single time. He provides the way for us to move forward in faith. In fact, maybe what we need to grasp and hold on to today, the Israelites didn't have this benefit because they didn't have an awareness of this yet, but we do now. What we need to grab on to is that Jesus came and He came to defeat the darkness. In John the first chapter and in verse 4, in John 1 and in verse 4, John writes, In Him was life. That is, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We will overcome as long as we keep looking to Jesus and moving forward in faith. Would you pray with me? Let's pray about that, please. Our dear gracious God and our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you thanking you for your word and we're thankful for the recordings that you have given to us in the book of Exodus about your people and about your dealings with them so long ago. Father, we are troubled by what we see around us and pervades our society and pervades our consciousness every single day as we are beset on all sides by wickedness and sin of every kind. And Father, it's so easy for us to get to thinking about the past and how things maybe were better once upon a time. And it's so easy for us as well to contemplate the idea of, of waving the flag of surrender. Father, defeat those attitudes within us. Help us not to be looking back. Help us, Father, never to give even the slightest bit of consideration to giving up. Help us, Father, to have more faith and more trust in You so that we would keep moving forward in obedience to Your will. Father, we praise You that You have given us the victory through Jesus, that the light will always prevail over the darkness. We thank You for His life. We thank You for His sacrifice and for the salvation that's made possible through Him. Father, we look forward to being with Him victorious in the end over all the earth and over all wickedness. We pray that You would help us to that end. We pray that You'd forgive us of where we fall short and help us to strive to do better, that we might serve You more diligently and have more faith and more trust in You. It is in the name of Your Son, the light, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And amen.